Thank you. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Second uh, Thessalonians? Second Thessalonians. We're going to be in the first chapter, Second Thessalonians, chapter one. Been having conversations lately with people as we're considering our our new building and uh, the opportunities for that new building and. Uh, in one conversation I had with someone, they said, and now, guess what we're going to be able to do? We're going to be able to be the church that we, uh, now that we have this building. And now we're going to be able to do programs and do a number of things because of the building. And I, I think I knew exactly what this person was trying to say, but uh, gently, I hope it was gently, I, I wanted to let them know that a, a building doesn't make a church. Um, programs don't make a church. And I was trying to think about what is it that makes a true church? What is it that, um, that God would desire in making this a church? And um, the reformers looked at the three offices of Jesus Christ, that he was a prophet, that he was a priest, and he was a king. And they said that a true church should follow those three elements, because anybody can become a pastor today. You just go on the internet and sign a couple of forms and you could be the reverend whatever. And you could open a church door any day. But what the reformers said is that a true church is a church that follows that prophet, that priest, and that king. As a prophet, this church should be a church that preaches the word of God. That it is word-centered. Because it is through the word God teaches us about himself and he teaches us about how we are called to live. So any church that you attend, here or any other church, to be a true church, they need to be a word-centered church, firstly. There's a second element, prophet-priest. A second element of a true church, the performers would say, is a church that focuses on the sacraments of the church. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in those two elements, we've had the privilege of baptizing people here, and regularly we practice the Lord's Supper. And in those two elements, those two sacraments of the church, what we do is we show forth the gospel. As a person goes into the waters of baptism, symbolically they're dying with Christ, and symbolically when they come out of the water, they're being raised with Christ. So they're preaching the gospel. It's a visible word when you do that. Or when we take the communion table, the body broken, the bread and the cup, symbolizing his body and his blood, we are speaking the gospel. It's a visible word. So a true church is a church that preaches the word. A true church is one that has a visible word through baptism and the Lord's Supper. But then the third element of a true church, the reformers would say, is a church that disciplines. I don't want you to be afraid of that word. Um, the discipline in a godly church is a church where the elders are desiring holiness in your life, glory in your life, that you start to reflect and this body start to reflect God. And that's what our desire is. And we come alongside you through teaching and preaching and sometimes through discipleship or discipline to help you to grow in Christ. Why am I starting there? Because I believe that this church in Thessalonica is a true church. And I think what we're going to see this morning through this prayer of Paul's is that he prayed that this church continued to preach the word, continued to pre uh, show those sacraments, continued to pursue holiness, and you will see it in their lives. Paul wrote this, and uh, Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament. We don't have to say much about him, but if you look with me here at the beginning of chapter 1, 
uh, verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, uh, this morning, as we have this opportunity to, uh, to get into your word, Lord, I pray that we'd be so excited to hear what it is that you want to teach us this morning. Help us to be filled by your spirit. Help us to be eager to hear, and more than just to eager to hear, help us to desire to be like those Thessalonian believers who were graced by you, who were vindicated by you, and were glorified by you. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work in our lives. I pray that the words of my mouth, I pray that the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Okay, so Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... You know Paul, Silvanus is um, a young man, his name was Silas, You've, you're familiar with him. He was a faithful partner of Paul in his ministry. He had gone with Paul on a couple of the missionary journeys. Um, Silvanus was his um, Roman name, he was Roman and Jewish, so his Silvanus was his Roman name, his Jewish name was Silas, that's the one that you're probably familiar with. Timothy, you probably know very well as well. Timothy is this young man, he was a native of Lystra, he was in the city of Asia Minor, he was the son of, in the faith of Paul, he was Paul's protege, he was raising him up, he was the disciple of Paul, and if you remember, towards the end of Paul's life, he wrote two letters to him, First and Second Timothy, and in that Second Timothy passage, it was probably the very last book that he wrote, and that was to Timothy. And this passage says that in Second Thessalonians 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica. Well, Pastor Doug got an opportunity to tell you about Thessalonica um, last week, so I won't take the time to tell you about that. But it is a, it's a port city. It's this harbor city. So many people were coming in and out of the city. Um, it was a city that was full of cult um, practices. They had multiple gods. So to have one that was going to be preaching about a single god, a divine God, a God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was radically different than what was happening in this culture. If you turn into Acts 17 later this uh, afternoon, you'll get an opportunity to read the birthing of, of this church at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. What I want to try to focus on this morning is, is Paul's framework for his prayer. What I want you to consider this morning and what I want you to ask yourself is this, do I pray like this? Do I pray like this for my wife and for my kids? Do I pray like this for my friends and my family? Do I pray like that for this church this morning? I want you to ask yourself repeatedly, is this a theme of the types of prayers that you pray? So what we want to try to do is, you remember when Jesus was asked by the apostles, Lord, teach us to pray? And uh, the disciples said, yeah, God, I just don't know. I hear you praying. I want to be able to pray like you. Well, in some ways, we're going to ask Paul to teach us to pray as well because we're going to be following the framework of his prayer this morning. As Doug said last week, Paul, most of Paul's prayers kind of break down into thanksgiving and petitions, and this prayer is going to be similar. So verses 1 through 10 are going to be his, his thanksgiving, and then he's going to have two petitions specifically in verses 11 and 12. So let's start uh, this morning. 
I want you to consider that this Thessalonian group of people are first a graced people, a vindicated people, and also a glorified people. A graced people, a vindicated people, and a glorified people. Well, let's start verses 1 through following to talk about the grace that they've received. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the fact that they're graced in the fact that they have a secure salvation. They have a secure salvation. God said here through Paul that this church is in Christ Jesus or in God the Father and Christ Jesus. They are deeply rooted in God. I want you to consider that we are in this world, but not of it. This Thessalonian believer in church is a very young church. It's a baby church. And soon after, if you read um, Acts chapter 17, you will see persecution has now already come into this early church. And so now the suffering and the persecution and the affliction are coming in. They are a young church, but they are deeply rooted in God the Father. They're in this world, but not of it. What they're talking about is it's not a place. He's talking about a relationship that you have with God. Jesus, if you remember in John, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. You remember he also talked about in John that you're in the palm of my hands. No one will snatch you out. And then he said, you're within the Father's hand. No one can snatch you out of his hand. You remember he said to the disciples in the uh, upper room discourse, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Remember Pastor Tim um, uh, preached that sermon where we were talking about abiding and remaining in Christ, that there is this connected, you're deeply rooted in him. I got the opportunity to preach to you about the high uh, priestly prayer where Jesus said that knowing God is eternal life, that you were deeply rooted in God. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Romans 8, where it says there is no condemnation and no separation from your love. Nothing will ever separate you from God. What Paul is praying over these people is that they know that they have a secure salvation because they are in God. That should amaze you today. That God is here among you if you know Christ and he's within you. You're in him, abiding in him. But what jumps out at me as next is not only the word in, but he says God the Father. The Father is this caring, he's compassionate, he loves you, he nurtures you, he protects you, and he wants to be with you, and he will never leave you. That's the type of Father that he is. Remember several weeks ago I talked about the fact that the Father, uh, at times for us on an earthly level, we've neglected our children, we've hurt our children at times as fathers. We've been an imperfect father this side of heaven. But we have a father in God who is a God who is never imperfect. He is always there for you. He loves you. And what Paul is saying is that as you're going through this trial, I want you to know that you have a, you're in the father. But not only in the father, he says you are deeply rooted in there, but you are also being directed by a Lord. He says here that the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1, you are in God the father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Lord, but what comes to my mind is this idea of Lord and master and ruler and sovereign. Lord focuses on the fact that he's creator and that he's sovereign. Jesus focuses on, remember when Jesus was given the name, you shall call his name, what? Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from his sins. 
that the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. So we've got a Lord who's sovereign and master and ruler. We've got Jesus who's Jehovah saves. And Christ is the Greek word Messiah. That's who we are being directed by. You are deeply rooted in the Father. You're being directed by the Son. And you are being drawn to two things. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace. We are drawing from the Father and from the Son grace and peace. Grace is this undeserved favor. It's that you are completely forgiven by God. It is a continual experience of the believer's life that I live by grace and I live for your glory. And the result of grace is peace. Peace with God and peace of God. That the war is over. That if you were in Christ, the war that was happening between you and God is over. It's done. When Christ hung on a cross and he said, it is finished, the war is done. And what God has given you is peace with him, but then he wants to give you the peace of God that is in your heart and in your life. In Romans 5, Paul said this. He says, therefore, you've been justified by faith. You have right now at this moment peace with God. But you remember in Philippians 4, he talked about the fact that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That God wants you to know that you are at peace with him and that you have the peace of God. So you are deeply rooted in the Father. You are being directed by the Lord Jesus Christ and you're drawing from him grace and peace. You are securely saved, my brothers and sisters, if you know him. Well, there's a second thing that Paul prayed over them. Not only that they would be secure in their salvation, second, he prayed that they would be flourishing in their faith, flourishing in their faith, because they are a graced people. He said in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, it says this, we ought to always give thanks to you, for um, you brothers, as it is written, um, because of your faith is growing abundantly and your love for one another is increasing. The first thing I see there is that he says, I ought to always give thanks to you in prayer. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word ought, but ought seems like it's obligation. It's a duty. So is Paul kind of, I just got to do this duty and pray thanks over you guys? No, Paul is seeing life and grace coming out of this body of believers. And he says, it is only fitting for me to thank God for you. He is saying that I see gratitude, I have appreciation, I have such gratefulness in my heart today. You know, today we live in a society that is so entitled, right? In our society, you know, I, you owe me, you owe me this thing, I deserve this thing. That mindset that is so apparent in the world out there has crept into the church. We even believe in the church at times that God owes us. Well, God owes us nothing but hell, but he's given us everything in heaven in Christ. And that should cause us to praise God and say that I'm such a graced person because of this. And what Paul is saying is that the transformation I'm seeing in your lives, believer, is real gospel transformation. There has been a change that is happening in your life. I see it. I can see the life of Christ living in this body of believers. Oh, Paul was so very thankful. What caught me here is that he was thankful to whom? Was he thankful to the body of believers? The Thessalonian believers? No. He was thankful to God for them. 
because he knew that as graced people, they had a secure salvation, but then any faith that was happening in their lives, because of, it was because of God and God alone. That God is the one that gets glory. God is the one that is producing the faith in them, and God is the one that is producing this life. So why is he telling the, Philippian, um, the uh, Thessalonian believers that he is thanking God for them? I think that they were going through such trial and difficulties in their lives. And Paul wanted to say, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for you in such a way because I can see God living in you in a strong and mighty way. And I want you to know when Satan and the world attacks you, God is with you because you are securely saved. Second thing he wanted to pray for them is that I want to see a flourishing faith. I see a flourishing faith. He says it right here. He says in verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to you for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. What God does for a believer is that he calls us to him, he regenerates us, and then he gives us the gift of faith, and then we act on that gift of faith. And the faith that we have that is given to us at salvation, we continue to exercise through our lives. And what these, these Thessalonian believers were doing was they were exercising this faith that God had given them. They were increasing this faith. It was amazing. Faith is this belief or conviction or trust in God, but this was growing. It was increasing. It was becoming abundant. It was flourishing in their lives. They weren't satisfied with past spiritual successes. No. They continued to move forward, and they wanted to see God do even more works through this, communication, uh, through this congregation. They wanted to see their faith grow and increase and flourish. Faith in God is never stagnant. One author put it this way. It's kind of like a tree that is solid, it's moving upright, and it is fruitful. That is a solid foundation. It is moving upward, and it is fruitful. And that's what this congregation should become. That's what you should become as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're exactly the way you are, or the way you were 10 years ago, what I'm asking you to consider is this. There's something that has to change in your life because faith should be flourishing in a believer's life because we're grace people. In 2 Peter 3.18, it says, But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. So the thing I'm asking you is this. When you pray over the people in your life, do you pray about the fact that they have a secure salvation? When you pray over people, do you pray that they would have a flourishing faith? a faith that is growing and in intensity and maturity. There's a third thing I want to ask you. Do you pray over people that they have a lavished love, a secure salvation, a flourishing faith, and now lavished love? What is it about this congregation? Paul said in verse 3, he said, your love of every one of you for one another is increasing. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians, a passage that is read at so many weddings, love is, is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it is not insisting on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, hope, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Now that... 
a congregation that is wired in to the grace of God is a congregation that understands their salvation, is growing in their faith, and it is a congregation that starts loving one another. See, that's what's going to be different about this congregation. As I look out and I see the different shades and the different tongues and the different people that are in this congregation, and hopefully we'll bring even more into this congregation, we start to reflect something radically different than the world. See, the world, you go into groups, people that have the same socioeconomic status kind of get together, and the same people of the same ethnicities or race get together, and the same people of the same type of jobs or education, they get together, and they all pull together because they get together with people that are like them. What should be radically different in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that people who are so distinct come together, and the world says, I don't know how those two guys get together. And what it is, it's love. If it's a lavish love, and that's what the world wants. The world wants to know a secure salvation. The world wants to understand a faith that is flourishing, but the love wants to be, the world wants to be loved. This body is going to do amazing things out in this, in this congregation, out in this world, not because we get a building, but what we're going to do through that building. But more importantly, what we're going to do through your lives. A lavish type of love. Paul was praying that. Is that your prayer today? The fourth thing that I think Paul saw was not only a secure salvation, a flourishing hope, a lavish love, but a habitual hope, a habitual hope. As I was telling you, these Thessalonian believers are under persecution. They are being persecuted and they're suffering for their faith. And Paul is praying that your hope become so habitual in your life. Look with me here in verse 4. It says this, therefore, we ourselves boast about you. That's where we get our title for our message, a church that you can boast about. We ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and your afflictions that you're enduring. Does your faith flourish in the midst of the fire? I was talking to a brother this morning, and it's like, why in the world does God allow us to go through the difficulties that we go through? Why is it that we go through the trials, and every single one of us in this room are going through significant trials in your life? And, and you wonder, why is it, God, if you really loved me, why would you allow this thing to happen? And the fact of the matter is that God truly loves you, and he knows that through this fire, you can flourish. It is through this path of pain that you can come out as gold, you can come out refined because God is going to take you through the path of suffering to produce something amazing in your life. And see, now, if you can keep a vision of that hope as you go through the trials, knowing that you're a graced person, you can sustain. One author put it this way, persecution destroys false faith. Hear this. Persecution destroys false faith. Persecution never destroys true faith. I love that line. True faith is indestructible. See, what happens is this. Not that you don't have times of doubt. All of us do. The Psalms are full of times where the psalmists are sitting there. God, I just don't understand why. You go through times of despair and times of doubt. I got that. But you will not ultimately fall away because of persecution because you will never leave the secure salvation that you have in Christ. That God has you in his hand and he will not let you go for the believer in Christ. I love that line. He said, persecution produces a pure church. It drives the true believer to God. They get to know him and they get to trust him. 
What Satan knows is this. He cannot rob that secure salvation from you. You're in, his, you're in God's hands. He can't get you out of that. But what he wants to rob you of is joy and hope. And what Paul is saying is this. I want you to first, guys, know that as you're going through these trials, you are a graced person. I want you to know that you're graced in the fact that your salvation is secure, that you are flourishing in faith, that you are lavished in your love for one another, and that there's a habitual hope in your life. Is that the way you pray for your family? Is that the way I pray for you? Is that the way we pray for this church? Well, there's a second thing I think that Paul is trying to tell us. Not only are we a grace people, but secondly, we are a vindicated people. Secondly, we're a vindicated people. Look with me in verses 5 through 10. Now, I will tell you ahead of time that as we read verses 5 through 10, this is a very difficult passage. It's difficult for those of you that are in this room who have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's difficult for you if you're sitting here today and you do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a family member or friend that don't. But this is God's word. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God consider it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer eternity punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified with his saints to be marveled at among all those who believe because our testimony to you was believed well first I want to talk to those of you that are believers I would assume that's the vast majority of us here this morning and Paul wants us to know that you are not only a grace person but you're a vindicated person Vindicated in, I believe, three ways. You're going to receive a righteous judgment from God. Second, you're going to get rest and relief. And third, there's an eternal reward. Well, the first thing is this. Our great problem in humanity is this, that in Adam, Adam and Eve, in Adam, our foreparents, when they sinned, their sin was transmitted to every single person ever born in this world outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are connected, not only genetically, but we're connected spiritually to what Adam did thousands of years ago. That seems unfair to you. I got it. Stay with me. The reality is, is that humanity is born with a moral corruption. We're born with guilt. We're born under condemnation. And humanity is born alienated from God. We desperately need a new nature. We desperately need forgiveness. We desperately need acceptance before God. And we desperately need reconciliation. And what God has done for you and for me, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given you a solution. And the solution is Christ. He says, for your corruption, for your guilt, for your condemnation, for your alienation, I want to give you Christ. He calls it justification. Justification is that God 
It's a free gift of God by his grace. And what God does for you is he counts the character and conduct of Christ on your account, and he places your character and conduct on Christ's account. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 this great exchange that happened, that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, through him, might become the righteousness of God in him. What God did for you, if you trust in him, is all of your sin and all of the wrath that God would have poured upon you for eternity, he poured upon his son. And the only requirement is faith. What he did for you is this. He counts all of Christ, all of your guilt against Christ. It's not based on your character or conduct. It's based on the character and conduct of God. He credits Christ's righteousness to you and Christ fully, completely satisfied the wrath of God for your sin. He paid it all. And the only requirement is that you trust him and him alone. And on that day, and actually today, if you are in Christ, you are counted righteous in his sight. Believe it or not, on my worst day, God still looks at me as though I lived Christ's life blows my mind that the perfect record of Christ is mine, not because of anything I did, but because God gave it to me as a gift. You're righteously rewarded. You're a vindicated people. But there's a second way that you're righteously rewarded. I'm sorry, uh, uh, that you're vindicated. You have rest and relief. You know, heaven is a place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. It is the ultimate rest for your soul. And what God says is this, I know you're going through trials right now and suffering. I know you're going through persecutions, but I want you to know that as I look at you, you're righteous in my sight. You're a vindicated person because I want to give you rest and relief today, but then I want to give you the ultimate rest and relief in the future. But there's a third thing he wants to do. He wants to reward you with heaven. He wants to reward you with eternal life. He wants to reward you with God a Father and the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to reward you to seeing Christ glorified because of you. What an amazing reward. You are a vindicated people. You are a graced people. The thing about hell is the thing that um, nobody really wants to talk about. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. It's a reality. There is a place and a time where people who have all their lives said, I don't want you, God. Because in essence, that's what a non-believer is saying. I don't want your word. I don't want you. All their lives. And what God has been so gracious, he amazes me. He gives us this common grace as well. He allows every non-believer to live. He lives a non-believer to breathe. He allows them to have children. He allows them to work. He allows them to use the talents that God has given them for God's glory. They've used it for their own glory. And God has been patiently waiting slowly and slowly and slowly. And then finally, there's going to be a day where everybody's going to stand before God. And there are going to be some on his side here. He pronounces you just, not because of anything that you've done, because we look to the lamb alone who's taken away our sin. 
And then they're over here, he's looking to a group of people who have said, I don't want you, God. And they've been saying it all their lives. And guess what they get? They get eternity without God. They get complete ruin and loss. The life that should be, they don't get. They're cut off from the presence of God. They're cut off from his glory. They're excluded from all joy and all pleasure and all satisfaction. The utter sense of emptiness. They're removed from all uh, companionship, fellowship with one another. They're separated from all goodness. They're extinguished from love and affection. They're banished from all hope. You know, as I was reading this passage, I was listening to one commentator or reading one commentator, and he said, in essence, the Christian church today acts as fundamental universalist. Fundamental universalist. And what he meant by that is this. When you go to the gas station, do you see that person as somebody who could be going to an eternity in hell? When you're checking out at the grocery store, do you see that person as somebody that in a moment can be separated from God for all of eternity? Do we really as believers believe that there's a hell? I think the sad reality is we don't live that way at times. Because if we really believe that we are a grace people and a vindicated people and that they're going to be people that are going to be judged to hell, we'd be living our lives to be preaching the gospel and living the gospel in our lives. So when Paul was praying over these people, he is saying, you are a grace people. You've got a secure salvation. You've got a flourishing faith. You are lavished in your love. And then you've got this habitual hope. And I want you to know that you're a vindicated people. You are going to be righteously judged. There is rest for you. There's a reward. But I also want you to know that you're here to speak my gospel out and to live my gospel out to the world. But that leads us to the last thing I want you to consider. Not only a grace people, a vindicated people, but they are a glorified people. A glorified people. Verses 11 and 12. It says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of the calling. Now, I got kind of caught up in what does it mean that we are made worthy because I honestly believe the justification is based on the character and conduct of God alone. So what in, what in the world is Paul talking about when he says, I want to make you worthy? Do I have to earn something to get to heaven? That's not what Paul is saying. See, when we talk about calling in the Bible, calling in the Bible sometimes means an outward calling. Like I am preaching now. Some of you in this room don't know Christ. You're hearing a message. You're hearing it with your ears and hearing it with hopefully deeper than that. But there's some of you at one time or another where you were called inwardly. And when Paul talks about calling, he's talking about this inward call. It's effective that when God gets your heart and draws you to faith, you're his. You're brought to faith. And Paul is saying is this, I want you, you body of believers here today, to live the life that you are. Become who you are. Represent the family name the name of God, this church should represent the family name. And as we represent the family name, God has graciously called you, so now live up to the calling. Live up to the calling. What God wants to do in you and through you 
is that you start to reflect him. But there's a second petition, not only that you make them worthy, God, but the second petition is found in verse 11 as well. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. The second petition that Paul is praying, the first one is make them worthy. The second one is this, empower them to resolve to do good. That if we are ever going to do good as a body of believers, it has to come from God. God has to be the one empowering us to do it. And Paul is praying that over this congregation of believers, that God does something amazing in your life so that God can do something amazing through your life. Do you want to speak good words? Do you want to do good deeds? Do you want to live a way that reflects God? Do you want this church to be filled, not because of just numbers, but because people are coming into this congregation because they see us as a grace congregation? Do you want people to come out of hell to heaven? Do you want to reflect the glory of God? That's what Paul is praying over them. And Paul is saying the goal of it all is found in verse 12. Here's the goal. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. I I appreciated the song we sung earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. See, See, Jesus left heaven to come here to earth and live like us and to die for us, but then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is holy, holy, holy. Jesus will be glorified through you, but then the amazing I just, this blows, blows my mind. Jesus wants to also glorify us in him. That we start to reflect him. See, God works in us and then he works through us. This church can be a church that glorifies him. See, we're changed. In this side of heaven, we're moving towards that glory progressively. We don't have it right. But that side of heaven, glory, perfection, freedom. That's what you're going to be in Christ. So Paul prayed over this congregation that way. And I guess I ask you in closing, is that the way you pray? Do you pray like this over your children or your spouses, your, your friends, your family members, your church members? Do you pray that they are grace people? Some of us pray that our kids get into a good college. Some of us pray that our kids get a good education. (laughs) Some of us pray that we could get a good job. Those things are important. Don't misunderstand me. They are. But the essential of prayer, the depth of prayer, what transformed Paul's heart for these congregation of believers is that they knew that they were a grace people, that they knew that the vindication, they were a vindicated people, and he prayed that they be a glorified people. My uh, blog site I have this title, the blog site, and it just reminds me of these principles here. I call it by his grace and for his glory. And if you could live every day thinking that I live every moment, I breathe every day by his grace, and that I want to live every day for his glory. See, that's a church you could boast about. Not a building, not programs, but people that are changed by the glory of God, by the grace of God for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? (sighs) 
Lord, as we uh, have this, this, uh, this privilege, uh, your word excites me, Lord. I love it. I know that there's some believers that struggle with understanding it. It's not always easy to understand it isn't. But Father, I thank you for the fact that you give us your Holy Spirit to teach us his word to us. I praise you for that. I thank you for prayers, because some, sometimes, Lord, as, as Paul said in Romans 8, I just groan in my prayers. I can't even figure out what to say. And even those groans you'll take as prayer requests to your throne. You're interceding for us, Holy Spirit, and Jesus, you're interceding for us, but I thank you for that. But I thank you for model prayers in Scripture, prayers that give us a framework of how we should be praying for one another. Prayers that pray, like this one, Paul, that we become a graced people. We already are. We're securely saved. We, I pray that we would flourish in our faith. I pray that this church would be a, a church of lavished love and habitual hope. I pray that we would know that we're a vindicated people, that we are righteous in your sight because of what Christ has done. We've got to rest right now and an ultimate rest in eternity. And Lord, we have a reward of heaven. And Father, I pray that we can glorify you, that we'd be a glorified people, that we will see the glory of your Son magnified, and that we could reflect him. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning who have never trusted in your Son. I pray today would be the day that they would say, I've had enough. I got it. I want him. I want heaven. I want life. I want joy. I want satisfaction. I pray that. I pray that they would bend their knee to your son today, that you've called them, that you've drawn them, and now they speak out in faith. And then for the many of us that do know you, Lord, help us to live every day by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.